Welcome to Near Death Experience Podcast. I'm Chaz Hathaway. My voice is starting to come back. Hopefully it will last. If I start getting tired, I may stop at one experience or we'll see what happens. This is an experience from enderf.org called A Child NDE, and the name is not listed of who had this, but this occurred in 1985. So we'll go ahead and read this. This is a five-year-old girl that uh, tells this. In August of 1985, when I was only five years old, I was on a boat trip on a local lake. I was bitten by a mosquito and developed encephalitis. I died and drifted into a safe black void of comfort and ease. No pain and no fear. This was a place where I felt right at home. Off in the distance, I saw a very small light. It was drawing me to it. I felt myself rushing towards this light with a great amount of speed. I was not frightened. When I came into the light, it represented peace and joy, but most of all, a deep unconscious love. The light was a sparkling, glowing cloud. From inside, I heard a voice in my head, and I knew it was God. Since my parents never discussed God or took me to church, I really didn't know how I knew, or I really don't know how I knew, but I did. Furthermore, I felt like this was my real home, this place where I was with this beautiful light, which was God. I felt surrounded by the light and was one with it. The feeling was like being scooped up and held by my daddy when a barking dog was biting me just a few months earlier, only more so. Another beautiful light, only smaller, joined us. It was a girl about ten years old. She looked somewhat like me. I could tell she recognized me. We hugged, and she said, I'm your sister. I was named after our grandmother, Willamette, who died one month before I was born. Our parents call me, called me Willie for short. They were waiting to tell you about me later when you were ready. I was talking to her and she to me without words. It was too strange too, uh, it was too strange looking back on it, but it seemed natural at the time. She kissed me on the head and I felt her warmth and her love. You need to go back now, Sandy, she said. You need to save Mother from the fire. This is very important. You need to go back, and you need to go back now. She said it with compassion and sweetness in her voice as she smiled at me tenderly. No, I don't want to, I said. Let me stay here with you. Mother needs you to save her from the fire, she repeated, still in a soft and gentle way. Like a selfish little brat, I cried and threw a temper tantrum of the worst kind. I fell on the ground and sobbed and thrashed around and made everybody, I'm sure, feel very uncomfortable. I was shown a type of movie in which I saw my parents, who were back on earth, sitting beside my hospital bed with great concern and fear in their eyes. They touched and talked to me and begged me not to die. Please don't die, they were crying. I was very sad for them. Still, I was not really ready to give up the beauty and awesome great feelings of all that was good about this place, this heaven. God gave me a chuckle, 
and looked at me with great compassion. I couldn't really see his face, but I knew what he was thinking. He was chuckling at my childish antics. He then pointed a finger at another light that was forming in the distance. To my great shock, my dear friend and next-door neighbor, Glenn, formed and shouted in a loud voice, Sandy, go home! Go home right now! He said it with such authority that I immediately quit crying and was back in my body in an instant. I opened my eyes to see the joyful and relieved faces of my parents. I told them about my experience as soon as I could, which they at first called a dream. They told me that the day after I went into the hospital that our neighbor, Glenn, died from a sudden heart attack. He was a kindly old man who, was always in, who always invited my brother and I and all the other kids in the neighborhood into his backyard to play with his five dogs. He loved kids and would give us food, gifts, and treats. His wife would usually, or his wife, wife would eventually get tired of us and tell us all to go home. He would scold her and say, Rose, never tell Sandy she has to go. She can stay as long as she wants. I was his favorite of all the kids who were welcomed into his home. It was a shock to me to have him yell at me that way, that I really, that I really gave up fighting and felt a little embarrassed about my behavior. I recall feeling a little hurt at the time. I only learned of his death after I told my, uh, told my story to my parents. I drew a picture of my angel sister, who had greeted me and described everything she had said. My parents were so shocked. They had this horrified look on their faces. In puzzlement, they got up and left the room. After some amount of time, they finally returned. They confirmed to me that they had lost a daughter named Willie. She died of accidental poisoning approximately one year before I was born. They decided not to tell my brother and me until we were able to understand what life and death was about. As far as the need to rescue my mom from a fire... None of us has a clue about that. My mom is helping me to write this, and I asked her what would her life have been like if I had died, if I had gone my way and just stayed in heaven. She replied, I cried for months after Willie left us. If we lost you too, it would be like a living hell, fire and all. Time will tell, but maybe for now it seems like a good, as good an, as an answer as any. I believe we will see Willie someday, and I will ask her for in, in person what she meant. It has changed the lives of the entire family. We go to church now, and I do a lot of things differently than I had before. That's the end of the experience. There is a lot of uh, cool stuff in there as far as evidences. Um, the sister that she was never told about, and she comes back, and her sisters say, or her parents say, yep, that's true. <laughs> How'd you know about that kind of thing? Some great little evidence there, and uh, and the evidence uh, of, you know, having the neighbor there um, shout at her to go back, um, and uh, and she didn't find out till after she told the story that he had died the day before. Um, very interesting. It is also interesting to me that 
you know, in in many cases, well, it in in many cases people are encouraged to go back, like this girl was, and she's told that uh, she needs to go back, and and it's not entirely clear whether she had a choice. It sounds like she did, but she re- they really needed her to make the choice to come back. Um, that seems fairly common. Um, but regardless of whether it actually is a choice or not, it's interesting to me how often the, um, you know, when those who do want to go back are told everything will be fine. Yes, it will be difficult for your children. Yes, it will be difficult for their father or their aunts and uncles who will raise your children and so forth, but they'll be okay. And then at other times, they're told like this, you need to go back. You have things to do. And I suspect in the cases where they're invited to come back, it means they fulfilled their basic mission on earth. Now, from what I understand, from what many have said about life missions, um, we are always invited or, or allowed to take on more missions. Um, if we fulfill our basic mission, there is, you know, many other things we can do. You know, it may be that, for example, if I was sent to this earth to um, to be a good father to my children, let's just say that was my primary purpose. If I also volunteer at a rest home, that's certainly not going to be a bad thing, and it will certainly do good, maybe even help others in their mission. And if in addition to that, I go to school and study a, you know, a subject and maybe inspire some of the other uh, people that are going to school to pursue their purpose, their mission that they were sent here to do, then that's an additional thing. The, the point is, I think we have basic missions that we are sent here to do. And if we haven't finished those missions, we're usually encouraged to go back if it was an untimely death if it was an untimely death, because I don't think anybody's taken um, when it is not their time, if they were making choices that as best they can say were the right choices. You know, I don't think you're going to have a total accident that takes you out of this life before you've had a chance to fulfill your mission. I just don't think that's in the program to do. However, you always have a choice whether or not to fulfill your mission. So if you're living your life completely selfishly and not interested in, you know, you may have different wake-up calls, be it a near-death experience, be it um, a, a death in the family or, or some kind of catastrophe, loss of a job, something that just kind of like hits you in the side of the head with a two-by-four to tell you, get into gear, dude, you've got some things to do. And we still have a choice whether or not to fulfill those missions, but, you know, again, it is our choice, uh, but uh, we will be encouraged over and over like this. I imagine that this girl is sent back because she still has a mission to fulfill. I mean, she's only five years old. Some people have missions that only require, you know, three days of life or whatever, I suspect. And, and uh, But in this case, she had some life mission to fulfill, and uh, she is sent back to fulfill it. So, um, very cool, just beautiful little experience in the in a five-year-old. Nothing, <laughs> a five-year-old, while they can do naughty things, quote-unquote, 
they really can't do anything wrong. Whatever they do naughty is either out of a strict sense of mortal curiosity or because they were taught wrong and therefore, you know, it's you can kind of blame the parents for any horrible thing they do. Anyway, um, five-year-old is is just innocent. I mean, just innocent. And uh, clearly in this case, she had not finished her mission. And, when you know, the first time when I first read this and she threw that temper tantrum, I was like, wait, how old was she again? And I looked five years old. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I have had five-year-olds that sent that uh, throw temper tantrums like that. However, it's interesting to me also how many people in near-death experiences throw tantrums, even when they died as an adult and they're told to go back and they throw temper tantrums. It's kind of funny, actually. Anyway, let's do another one. This next one is a little bit, um, it has a little bit of graphic. I will probably tone it down a little bit. Um, if you want to read the full thing, it is called One Soldier, NDE. It is also on enderf.org. Um, and it even prefaces with graphic gory details and unsettling story presented. Reader discretion advised. That seems to always be a risk with death situations, but um, I'm going to see if I can still keep it family friendly here. Back in 1969, I was in Vietnam doing my patriotic duty and teaching others how to do theirs. I was a Green Beret trainer in hand to hand combat in guerrilla warfare. I felt that caring, uh, I felt the caring of enemy soldiers was like a giant video or chess game. I gave no thought at all to the fact that the enemy really had personalities, names, parents, wives, children, complete with their own individual fears, goals, hopes, and dreams. It just wasn't anything I gave any thought to. They were just numbers to me. High kill numbers were good. The higher the better. A conscious a conscience didn't pay off in the military. High number high kill numbers did. I'm I was mean, tough, and macho. I could use every part of my body to kill. I was a trainer of such man of such men as well. I'd been a bit too cocky one day and almost paid the ultimate price. I was caught off guard and was taken out by a mortar shell. I floated above the body. And or I floated above my body and didn't feel any pain. I couldn't believe that I could still hear, see, think, and even smell. I tried to feel the pulse of my own body below me, but much to my shock, my fingers went through my own neck. I knew I was seriously hurt. A corpsman I only knew as Skip showed up, and I felt a sense of, re of relief. He began calling my name and asking me if I could hear him. I suddenly was looking eye to eye with him and answering his questions, although he could not hear me. I noticed that he was bending very low over my body, yet we were eye to eye. It was then that I noticed, much to my amazement, that most of whatever body that I was now in was on the ground. Only my chest, shoulders, neck, and head were above the ground. I thought that was pretty weird, but it only got weirder when I felt a sucking sex sensation 
uh, downward and was suddenly in a trench. This trench was filled with blood, guts, and body parts. To make matters worse, I saw an Asian I saw Asian-looking men, women, and even little children standing on both banks of this trench. They were pointing at me and screaming. They grabbed at me as I sloshed and struggled my way through the revolting-smelling mess toward a distant spot of light. These people on the banks were missing parts of their faces, bodies, and limbs. A mother was holding her infant, and both of them had bullet holes in their face. Even though they were speaking Vietnamese, I could tell they were screaming that I was in some way responsible for their condition and their deaths. They were so horribly frightened that I tried to stay focused only on the light. I felt that if I could just reach the light, I would be safe. None of these dismembered people on the banks ever touched me, but I felt that I was running a gauntlet anyway. One of the most haunting memories of this torturous journey was of a six-year-old thin little girl I had referred to as Miss Piglet due to the fact that she always hung around begging for food and candy and was filthy. She showed up up at our camp one day and had something concealed in a bag slung over her shoulder. She looked as if she were about to do something that she knew she should not be doing. I carefully drew a bead on her from about 50 feet away and thought, if she pulls out anything suspicious, she's history. I saw her reach into her bag and pull out something that looked like a grenade. I thought, she has a grenade in that bag that has been and has been sent to blow up my guys. And then I blew off the top of her head with a single shot. Her brother later told me, or uh, her letter, her brother later told some of the other guys that she had been trying to find an American who would hide a puppy that she had become attached to and to save it from becoming part of the family dinner that evening. Several of the guys had criticized me for reacting too quickly and firing, when in fact I had only seen the head of the black puppy from a distance and thought it was a grenade. I shrugged it off in my usual manner, saying she was an unfortunate victim of war. One of the people on the banks of the river of blood and guts was this little Vietnamese girl. She was screaming at me with what was left of her face. I was horrified and filled with guilt. After I've gone through what seemed like miles of this trench, I heard my deceased best friend's voice from high school telling me that I can do it. I can make it. I knew he was giving me encouragement the encouragement I needed to make it to the light. My friend Ed had died one and a half years before in a hunting accident, yet here he was suddenly helping me out of the trench and hugging me warmly. I felt tremendous relief, relief, love, and acceptance. Tears of joy ran down both our faces. Hey, man, he said, I know that was rough, but you needed it. You were getting just a bit too callous, and that isn't like you. It wasn't the Keith I it just wasn't the Keith I knew when we played football together and hung around in high school. I took a good look around and was awed by the incredible beauty of the place that, where we both stood. 
It was like a meadow with a sparkling stream running through it. The colors were much more vivid than on earth. I noticed for the first time that Ed was glowing, and I looked at my own arms, and they glowed slightly too. He said to me, You're not doing the right thing. You shouldn't be doing this killing. Your mission is to help others and to protect them. You will learn more about your mission as you go along, but for now, you need to go back. This is your home, and you will return, but for now, you need to go back and discover your full mission, in, or your mission in full. As soon as he said that, I felt a pop and was instantly in pain and lying in a hospital bed. Later that day, Skip, the corpsman, stopped by to see me. I thanked him for saving me, saving my life. He wondered how did I know that it was him that tried to save him, much less know that he'd shouted my name, taken my pulse, and worked on me until other until more help arrived. I just shrugged it off and decided to keep the rest of the story a secret. Weeks later, I was shipped home and began to study to become a teacher. Since my Vietnam experience, I had felt a compelling protective need toward women and children. I even help out by volunteering to build shelters for abused and displaced women and their children. I've had some paranormal experiences since then, but we'll save that for another time. I hope that this NDE will shed some light on your research. That's the end of the experience. Whew. Ah, uh, wow. I don't envy that guy's <laughs> um, experience. And yet, could you call this a distressing near-death experience? There were certainly distressing aspects to it. But sometimes we tend to, when we read these things, we tend to um, say, oh, okay, this was distressing. This was good. You know, this was peaceful. This was loving. This was... You know, and maybe there'll be a distressing part, and then it will go into the peaceful part. And that kind of is what happened here. But it's interesting to me that he did not have exactly a life review. And yet he needed something of a life review because, as his friend said, you know, hey, man, I know that was rough, but you needed it. You were just getting or just a little bit too callous, and that just isn't you. It's not the Keith I knew when we played football together and ran around in high school. So, clearly, this experience of seeing as if, you know, was this the spirits of these suffering people? I don't know. Was it uh, an imagery placed, um, like, you know, kind of a, a spiritual hologram, if you will, um, placed in order to teach him that those people's lives mattered? Maybe. I don't know. Was it this crew of people who had been killed by him brought together? We need your guys' help. He's coming, and the guy who killed you, and we need your help to... I don't know. I don't know how that works, but it seems clear that this friend um, was familiar with him and, and his situation, and how he was getting a bit too callous about the lives around him, he was sent, you weren't sent to kill, you were sent to protect. Now, there's no doubt that in a war situation, sometimes protecting involves the taking of lives. But he had become 
he'd gotten past that point. He'd gotten past the point of doing it strictly out of a sense of protection and had become like, you know what? If you're in the way, uh, you're gonna, your life is going to be taken because this is war. And at war, people lose lives. And yours may be one of them. That's not a healthy attitude most of the time. And, uh, and it's also interesting to me that his friend says, hey, look, you got to go back. You got more to do. Your mission isn't finished. And he says, he says, uh, you will learn more about your mission as you go along. But for now, you need to go back. This is your home and you will return. But for now, you need to go back and discover your mission in full. Interesting. He wasn't told, you know, if you come back now, you're going to be slogging in this, in these death, in this death uh, trench for eternity. He didn't say that. He said, this is your home, this peaceful place that was in the light that had, that you'd reached, this meadow, a sparkling stream and so forth. This is your home and you will come back, but you have more to do. You have more to discover, more to learn. And so this is the kind of experience that ought to give hardcore soldiers some measure of peace. Not that it's okay that you're out killing callously, if you are, or that you were, but clearly from this guy's perspective, you need to learn the lessons that, uh, that this guy learned. And hopefully you don't have to do it the same way he did. You can learn it in this life. You can change your attitude, your, your uh, experiences, your, your day-to-day life, the way you approach people, the way you think about people, the way you feel about people. And clearly this guy did learn those lessons because he, uh, when he gets back, he becomes very protective um, toward women and children. And he volunteers and builds shelters for abused and displaced women and their children. I mean, he turned his his callousness into love and protection, which, you know, I mean, his friend said, you're here to protect, not kill. And so he returns to protecting and has that become a bigger part of his life. It's interesting, too, that he says, I have had some paranormal experiences since then, but I'll save that for another time. That indicates that he had some of the after effects of his near-death experience. Interesting. Um, Another thing, just, I mean, a small thing, really, but, you know, we talk about the tunnel and going through the tunnel, and we've heard of caves, we've heard of swirling tornadoes, you know, uh, conduits, uh, uh, long noodles, as children sometimes describe them. Um, And some of them describe them as whirling with storms, others with beautiful clouds, um, and of course caves. This one, he's traveling through a trench, which is very much a cave kind of a thing, but he's traveling through this tube, this, you know, it's still something of a shape of a tunnel. So why is that? What is that? I don't know. Um, some also experience, you know, rushing through space and, and that, you know, stars or whatever are swirling like a tunnel. And so what is it about a tunnel? I don't know. 
for this guy, it was slogging through a horrible <laughs> death like um, ditch, basically, um, which was to teach him some things and to kind of wake him up a little bit. So I kind of hit him on the head with a two by four and say, dude, your life is about protection and love and so forth. Anyway, interesting to me that it's um, a trench instead of a traditional tunnel. And yet a trench is sort of a type of tunnel. So very interesting. So I'm going to reiterate uh, again also that we have our call line and we encourage you to make a call if you feel so inclined, if you've had an experience you'd like to share, if you have questions, comments, whatever. The number is 970-NDE-CAST or 970-633-2278. And once again, thank you all of you so much for listening. Thank you.